In this 11th lecture, we'll talk about special populations or people who have specific vulnerabilities as a result of the groups that they belong to. So I want to introduce you to Deirdre McCloskey. Dr. McCloskey is the Distinguished Professor of Economics, History, English, and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, I really am an admirer of Dr. McCloskey. Uh, I've read a number of her books. She is does history of economics and um, just has an incredible amount of insight into the interaction between culture and economics and how our modern societies come about. And that's the reason why she's got appointments in so many different departments at the University of Illinois. I also had the opportunity to present a, a paper during a conference where she was uh, what we call a discussant. So I, there were you know, three or four of us presenting papers and her role was to kind of analyze and discuss, hence the phrase discussant, the, the various papers. And she was just a generous and kind to those of us who were there. I, at the time, I was a PhD student. So she was, uh, she was great and had a chance to talk with her afterwards. And just a person who I, she's, uh, I have read a lot of her work, having met her in person, just a person that I really have a lot of respect for. And so you're wondering, why am I sharing uh, Dr. McCloskey with you? As uh, What does this have to do with healthcare? Well, Dr. McCloskey was born, uh, Dr. Deirdre McCloskey was born Dr. Donald McCloskey. Uh, and so she is a trans woman um, and made the decision to transition after having been married and having had a couple of kids. She's written about this in public, and you can look up her name if you're interested in learning more about her. Whenever I think about, so I grew up, um, you know, came of age in the 80s, and you know, gay rights were discussed, and people were aware of gay rights, uh, but not in the way that you all, if you are undergraduates, and most of you listening are undergraduates, so not the way that you all have grown up with it, right? So the you take these things in stride quite casually. I grew up where there was a real, you know, there was a lot of mockery around people who were homosexual. And, you know, today that's, you know, and, and a lot of marginalization of people who are homosexual. The the difference between what it was like when I was a young person and, and obviously before that, even worse, um, is quite different than it is today. Trans rights have become a, a new uh, thing. And, you know, so over as I grew up and got older and learned, you know, and, and, and learn more about gay rights and, and learned about gay marriage. It was something I had to think a lot about because my immediate reaction was, you know, for example, with gay marriage was immediately was no, that's not a thing that, you know, makes sense to me. But I had by then gay friends and, and, and as I thought about it and, you know, thought about it in reference to them as individuals, I thought, that is, um, you know, that's that's not a, a that doesn't agree with my values, right? I, I'm very much believe in, you know, people being able to pursue their own uh, well-being, so long as they're not harming others. And so I came around through a, 
you know process of both rational thought and you know and rationalizing and and considering my own values but also considering the people the gay people in my life who I cared about and 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 came to you know change my thinking trans uh people you know have all fairly I guess we could say have always been with us um I'm I, I don't have a lot of knowledge in this area but as we we have trans rights have become a more central point in the last decade or so whenever I think about it I I put Deidre McCloskey's face there in my mind and it forces me to have more empathy because this is a person who I though I don't know well and she probably doesn't know my name at all uh and would have probably no memory of of having you know of me in particular from that you know from that one conference since she's done thousands of conferences but i i put that her name in that place to kind of create a a, a more clear perspective for myself and then i align my values and i try to think through you know how do i what is the right thing to do in terms of dealing with people uh, from this special population? So I th think for you, as you go forward and, you know, whatever your feelings are about the trans population in healthcare, we have an obligation to care for everyone. Um, but as you go through your life, thinking about different groups, try, I would recommend trying to meet them and get to know the, at least someone from that group so that you have a better sense of who they are and you can put their face uh, in your head, hold their face in your head when you think about issues that affect that particular group. So let's talk a little bit about trans as a special population. So trans people as a special population. So here's a picture of Nunzio, who's a queer transgender person. And uh, she's, she is going to be in your video you'll be watching. And excuse me, he is a trans man. My apologies, trans man. Um, he is in your video you'll be watching. And one of the things that is addressed here is... Nunzio was treated for polycystic ovary syndrome and PC, which is shorthand PCOS. And women with PCOS produce higher than normal amounts of male hormones. So this causes uh, their body to do a, a number of things, such as skip menstrual menstrual periods, and it makes them harder to get pregnant. And of course, they also develop male characteristics, such as facial hair and deeper voice and so forth. So um it can also cause long-term health issues in uh, females. So let's let's use female, male versus woman and and men. So a female with PCOS can develop long-term health problems such as diabetes and heart disease. So Nunzio was being treated uh, as if he was a cisgendered woman who wanted to have kids when in fact he was a trans man. So this is problematic, right? This is, this is, this, so Nunzio transgender people um, are a special population because they require special kinds of care. So Nunzio is female, but trans, trans man. So you want to care for 
a trans man with PCOS differently than you want to care for a cisgendered woman with PCOS. So trans people face a lot of discrimination, as, as you can imagine, but also lesbian, gay, and bisexual people do as well. And so you can see a, a LGBT people have faced rejection, threats, been treated unfairly by employers, and specifically transgender people. Many, you know, most have, have reported being physically attacked. Many have lost a job due to bias. And in healthcare, LGBT patients report that providers often uh, use excessive precautions or refuse to touch them. This was particularly true in the 80s and 90s, like I said, when I was growing up, coming of age, because we had HIV. And kind of like the early stages of COVID, we didn't know how HIV was transmitted. Like we, people didn't know if it was airborne or, you know, you could get it from, you know, uh, sitting on the same toilet seat as somebody else. There were all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, HIV, you can only get, it's a bloodborne disease. So you can only get it through intravenous drug use or having a blood transfusion or doing certain unsafe sex acts. Um, so, you know, so a lot of providers still use excessive precautions. They, you know, the, the, LGBT patients feel they're blame, blamed for their own health issues. Uh, providers use inappropriate language. And then transgender patients report, you know, being harassed in the doctor's office or being denied medical care. And, and healthcare, a healthcare space should be a safe space for anyone. So it's not right. Um, so other disparities include, um, so disparities meaning higher levels of, of incidence in the LGBT population. So higher, higher levels of HIV and sexually transmitted diseases, higher levels of anxiety and depression, higher levels of suicidal ideation and attempts, higher levels of substance abuse, higher levels of smoking. And as you might expect, higher level or uh, uh, higher levels of lack or, or a lack of peer and family support and homelessness. So all these things happen more frequently with LGBT, with the LGBT population. Now, um, the number of people who are identifying as trans have been growing, and this data is, you know, is somewhat out of date, it's seven years old. But one of the interesting things about um, the trans population is the change in, uh, first of all, the dramatic increase in the number of people who are identifying or publicly identifying as trans, but also the constitution of the people who are identifying as trans. You can see if you go back in time, most people who identified as trans were, were male, both adolescent and children were male. Greatly, the male population greatly dominated the trans. So uh, uh, population and fast forward, you can see that as this, as the number of people reporting as trans have increased, the population has inverted, and now you know more than twice as many natal women or um, natal girls or or female female adolescent females are reporting being trans. 
So we see two things, you know, in this pattern. So as as we look at epidemiology, as we look at this epidemiologically, we see a, a rapid growth in the adolescent female group, as well as and a more much more rapid growth than in the adolescent male uh, group. So something is is interesting that's happening here. Um, one of the things, one of the things about trans has, you know, was historically, um, it was historically uh, boys, uh, natal boys who declared and they would declare uh, trans early, you know, quite young, and it would stay throughout. And so this is called gender dysphoria, so that they are um, identifying with the with with the gender that's not aligned with their sex. Um when and it tends to come on and and most cases goes away over time kids get an idea in their heads and then it goes away over time but those that did stick uh tended to be young um and it would stick for many years so the idea of it would would stick with them for many years the term rapid onset gender dysphoria or rogd has been uh, proposed in recent years, as we've seen this dramatic increase in the number of, in particular, in the num number of adolescent females declaring uh, trans identification. And they don't show the early, um, the early uh, identification with trans as we have historically seen with, with young natal boys. So rapid onset gender dysphoria seems to come on during the adolescent period, especially with young females who then declare that they are cis, uh, excuse me, they are trans male, uh, trans men or trans boys. <clears throat> and this, some of this then raises a question of peer influence and what's called social contagion and young, young women, young female, adolescent females have historically been shown to have higher levels of social contagion for other sorts of uh, conditions such as cutting uh, and suicidal ideation. So there's some question about what is driving this sudden change, and it is a sudden change, and it's a sudden and dramatic change. So we'll see what happens, you know, going in future decades uh, as to, to what is, is actually uh, happening with this population. All right. So what makes a special population? Well, um, a special population has healthcare needs that are different from the gen general population. I'm kind of using scare quotes here. Uh, you know, the general population, because we can, we can inevitably break up the gen general population into, a, you know, hundreds and thousands of different subsets because ultimately we're each individual and we each have individual health needs. But there are certain commonalities with certain subpopulations. And often because these subpopulations are not part of the mainstream, part of the dominant uh, population, they often don't have adequate access to healthcare. Uh, they may require more healthcare services or specialized healthcare services than other people. And it can be driven by socioeconomic status. Uh, such as you know, having fewer financial resources. So they can be poor people, in other words, uh, and, and poor people tend to have higher rates of uninsurance. 
again, low income uh, households because uh, income drives your access to to healthcare related resources, as well as it drives pretty much all of the so social determinants of health. Income drives all the social determinants of health. And then the social status of the subpopulation, which are you know often marginalized populations, such as trans people, gay people, people of certain ethnic and racial groups. But also special populations can be pregnant women, children, the elderly. So we'll look at a list here in a minute. So this is from a research article talking about uh, clinical trials and pardon the lots of text, but basically we're getting at typical inclusion exclusion criteria for phase one or two clinical trials. So these are, you know, when we're talking about, about pharmaceutical companies developing trials for particular drugs, they will, they will go, they will try to get the general representation from the general population, which translates into Caucasian adults uh, between 18 and 65 years with, you know, who are not overweight, who are not pregnant, who don't have issues with their liver and other issues um, that are not encountered in the general population. And so as trials progress to phase three, they widen that out to include other racial groups, other ethnic groups, women who are pregnant and so on. But in these early phases of clinical trials, very often we're focused on kind of a mainstream group of people that are not representative necessarily of other minority groups. So special populations in healthcare have been identified as women, for example. So a lot of drug trials were done on men and women metabolize, metabolize pharmaceuticals differently than men do. So you have to get a representative group of, of men and women, you know, the elderly metabolize, drugs differently than than young people do children same thing right so there's there's a lot of when we start looking at different ways of providing health care different subgroups are affected by health care in different ways and then we have people with disabilities the lesbian gay bisexual trans queer and and plus uh, uh population racial, ethnic, and religious minorities, low-income, rural, and, car and incarcerated. These are all different ways. And you know, we can think about the theory of intersectionality, where we, you might be a black uh, woman, black lesbian woman, low-income, you know, and so on. And you can think about how all of these populations start to intersect and cause more uh, challenges. So, each of these groups can can you know each of these categories of people can be a special population because they have different needs women become pregnant uh that's a special need women generally speaking use more healthcare includes pregnancy but other other conditions so your book does a nice job um in particular with the asian racial group and showing how aggregation and generalization is really kind of antithetical to uh, good healthcare, and we could really do that with the same the same thing with Black, Hispanic, you know, white population. Um, so, and and especially around income. So, I want to touch just to talk about the special population of the incarcerated, uh, because that's kind of a universal 
across across the country. That's a you know a, a universal special population. Um, imprisonment, you know. So what is what makes you a special population if you are are um, incarcerated? Well, imprisonment, you know, by definition removes individual agency. You have you 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 lose the ability to make decisions about your health care. It limits by being institutionalized. The in, you know in a prison, the institution limits your ability to engage in and control your own health behaviors. You can't you know you can't get exercise. You get exercise when the prison says you can have exercise. You can't choose what you eat. Prisons are 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 notorious for having bad food. Uh, having food that is high, high in fat and high in salt. There's a lot of obesity in prison as a result of that, uh, and a lot of dietary-related chronic illnesses. Institutional. There are also institutional limitations on access to care. You know that uh, you're in a prison. You can't just go see the doctor whenever you feel like it. You have to go through the usually the Bureau of Prisons healthcare system. And ultimately, we have, I want to raise this issue of Eighth Amendment rights. The Eighth Amendment says, uh, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. And if you if you read some of the Eighth Amendment Supreme Court cases, many of them revolve around health care and the denial of health care or the inadequate provision of health care in prisons. And so one of the many of these things, right, the loss of individual agency, the limits on your your choices in terms of your behavior, loneliness, other awful things about being in prison are what people who study criminal justice call the pains of imprisonment. Like, yeah, you're going to prison and the punishment is you lose your ability to run your own life, right? But, and that's just, the, that's not cruel and unusual. That is the punishment. And it's a punishment that we accept uh, so, socially. But if you are a diabetic and you are put in prison, the prison system now has the responsibility to help you manage your diabetes. Because if you're going to prison, say for five years for selling heroin, it that's five years of imprisonment. It shouldn't translate into a death sentence, which it would if you're a diabetic and you're denied access to insulin and other necessary health care. So the Eighth Amendment, the idea here of the Eighth Amendment uh, or the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment is withholding medical care has been ruled to be cruel and unusual punishment. Even though we're, we, we have imprisoned these people, they still have rights. Uh, and they they have a right to individual dignity. And another point here is, and this picture actually comes from the prison hospice at Angola in Louisiana. Angola uh, is 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 the largest prison in state prison in Louisiana. And so you're you're going to be watching a video about the prison hospice program. So this is a picture from Angola, from the prison hospice system. So these gentlemen are both prisoners at Angola. Uh, the gentleman on the left is a hospice volunteer. 
and he does this in his free time when he's not working his prison job. Um, and so prisoners at places like Angola, Angola has all the levels of uh, all the levels of imprisonment uh, from from uh, basically work farm up through supermax. And uh, this is where if you get a life sentence in Louisiana, you get sent to spend out the rest of your days. And so obviously many, anyone who has a life sentence is going to die in prison and coming back to the eighth amendment and cruel and unusual punishment. We want to treat, you know, life sentence means you're never coming out, but that doesn't mean you should be treated in a cruel manner without dignity. And so hospice prison hospice programs try to restore some dignity to people's uh, end days, even if they are in prison. So I've, I'm going to have you watching a video about the prison uh, hospice at Angola as part of our extra lectures this, this, this week. <clears throat> so how many people are locked up in the United States? I said, this is a big issue in the United States. First of all, the United States locks up more people per capita than any other country, including communist countries like China and Russia. Um, we have a, almost 2 million people incarcerated in between, and this is a nice breakout between state prisons, federal prisons and jails and local jails, and then some other kind of um, lockups. And when you hear someone talk about jail versus prison, they're not the same thing. A jail is a short-term um, uh, confinement typically less than one year. So if you were to get, you know, 30 days for getting in a barroom fight or something like that, you'd spend that in a jail. But if you murdered someone and went to, to, you were to be confined for life, you'd be confined in a prison. Prison is meant for long-term confinement. Uh, and it has different resources as a result of that. So, is an interesting breakout. If you'd like to look at that some more, you can. Um, some considerations that, you know, for the incarcerated population, what's happening. So we looked at, you know, why are we thinking about the incarcerated population as a special population? Well, they have special needs. Some These are some examples of those special needs. I talked in the last, um, in the last uh, uh, lecture on long-term care, um, so, uh, some estimates of people who are imprisoned identify that some 30 to 60% of inmates have long-term psychiatric illness. Substance abuse is commonly associated with psychiatric illness, as I mentioned in, in, in the long-term care lecture, because people with who have untreated psychiatric illness often try to treat themselves with with illegal substances. High rates of bloodborne disease are, are associated with substance abuse because uh, drug users, especially intravenous drug users, so people are using heroin, for example, often share needles and that allows for the transmission of HIV and he hepatitis C, uh, which are chronic uh, deadly chronic diseases that have to be managed. So we kind of see this whole bad ecology of it starts with psych psychiatric illness that leads to substance abuse, which tends to lead to uh, exposure to, to bloodborne disease such as HIV and hepatitis C. 
There are also high rates of sexually transmitted disease, such as syphilis and HIV, uh, and then high rates of chronic illness resulting from poor health behaviors, such as bad diets, fatty and salty diets, uh, and lack of exercise in this population. Shifting from the incarcerated now to looking at the United States uh, by racial group, we can see uh, the evolution of household income. So this is the amount of income by household, uh, by racial group. And you can see Asians have uh, Asian households have the highest household income and continue to grow higher. Whites have uh, second highest, Hispanics fall, and last, black the black population. Breaking this out by quintile, or the lowest fifth, second fifth, middle fifth, and so on, as well as the top 5%, how much does that, you know, how much money are we talking about here? And you can see on the low end, very low rates of income for households. And then, you know, um, and you can see by racial group progressively worse. So the lowest fifth household income for Asians is 20,000. The lowest household income for blacks is eight, uh, you know, just, just less than 9,000. And so you can kind of see a progression across them. Uh, what you can kind of do uh, is look at it like a diagonal here. Um, and you can see like, uh, uh, you know, the second fifth is somewhere between um, the second and, and middle fifth for, uh, uh, for, um, white non-Hispanics for all races. The second fifth of Asians is better off than the middle fifth of Hispanics and is somewhere between the middle and fourth fifth of the black population. So, you know, you kind of look down, like, in a, like I said, like an, at an angle here. And, you know, if we're thinking about how do we, who's vulnerable, one of the things that makes a person vulnerable is their socioeconomic status, in particular, their household income. So one of the things we want to think about is how do we make sure that we have, you know, we're focusing on the vulnerable populations. Um, so um, this is an, this is this idea of a social gradient is sort of people are distributed by socioeconomic status on a gradient, meaning they kind of you can kind of look at it as a continuum from high socioeconomic status to low socioeconomic status. And it's not just money, it is also social status. So certain racial groups might not have, even though they might have higher income, might not have the same so social status as other racial groups. And to use the phrase marginalized uh, marginalized populations. So um, the Whitehall studies were done in in uh, in the UK, in, in England, um, and they looked at uh, British civil servants who worked at Whitehall. And Whitehall is sort of, um, it's the center of government uh, where all the government civil servants work. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit like working at the Pentagon in the United States, except that would just be, um, that would just be uh, uh, Department of Defense. So this is, you know, Whitehall is a is a 
is a big series of, I think it's a series of buildings where most of the civil servants that work for the national, the British national government work. And so they did, they did this study surveying British civil servants across the spectrum of grades. So we had people who were, you know, kind of low level functionaries, like your clerk at the DMV equivalent, all the way up through people who are working with the Secretary of State or the, you know, Secretary of Defense or something like that. So you kind of they were able to kind of sample from people who were low income all the way up to high income, and then they they were able to compare income and health outcomes. And what they found was that the lowest grade employees, the people who had the lowest income, had six times the likelihood of death from coronary heart disease. And then controlling for health behaviors, uh, controlling for health behaviors only made a modest difference. So they did find that people who were on the lower end of the grade system, so who were lower socioeconomic status, had worse health behaviors. They had a higher propensity to smoke. They had higher. They were had a, a higher propensity of uh, of being obese. They had less leisure time and they reported higher blood pressure. So they had a bunch of health behaviors that were negative, but even controlling for those health behaviors, we still saw um, that that uh, the lower income people had higher levels of heart disease. And so what the researchers drew from that was it's stressful to be low socioeconomic low socioeconomic status and socioeconomic status by itself creates stress, which then leads to heart disease. So two things are happening. Number one, people who were, were poor, who were lower socioeconomic status tended to have worse health behaviors. People who were higher socioeconomic status tended to live healthier lives. One could kind of generalize from that and say, by being you know, by being lower socioeconomic status, you had less hope, more stress. And so therefore you treated that, you kind of self-treated the way I was talking about in a previous slide with, with people with psychiatric illness, you self-treat with, you know, eating too much fatty, sugary foods, just eating too much, smoking, doing, drinking too much and so on, uh, and not exercising and not, you know, not taking better care of yourself. So that's what the Whitehall studies found is an interesting, and they did two kind of uh, two two sets of studies, I think ten years apart, and they basically found the same uh, outcomes. So if we have a special population, one of the things we want to do is provide healthcare in a culturally competent way, and so cultural competency tries to recognize that special populations have different ways of communicating, different values, different expectations. And so to be culturally competent, you have to have some sense of who you're dealing with and what their values are and what their expectations are. It doesn't mean that you have to use the same methods that the special population may come to expect, particularly if they're foreign born. So it, it doesn't mean that a U.S. trained physician should be, should be attempting to use 
traditional medicine, for example, that's used by you know, by a patient's home country. But it what it does require is that the healthcare tri provider try to understand that the patient may come from different traditions. And to help with culturally competent comp culturally competent uh, care, we have this concept called class standards or culturally and linguistically appropriate services. There's a series of guidelines that are available for uh, providers to help them deal with uh, and uh, provide appropriate culturally competent care to patients from all backgrounds and trying to uh, is trying not to stereotype a particular culture. And it really kind of boils down to asking the patient what cultural components the patient wants to integrate into their care and kind of negotiating between, you know, the provider and the patient. And that brings to, you know, to an idea that you may be familiar with the idea of hearing versus listening. Um, you know, my wife often uh, uh, talks to me and she stops and says, you're not listening to me. And then I repeat back, you know, what she just, you know, the last couple of sentences that she just said to me, but she's usually right. I heard her, my brain kind of processed and picked up what she said, but the other half of my brain was, you know, engaged with something else. And she knew that. And, you know, when I repeated it back to her, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I didn't, wasn't really listening. I heard what you said, but I wasn't really listening. I wasn't processing what you were saying because I was busy processing something else. So, you know, and you've probably done that with friends or family members as well, or, you know, your mom or dad telling you to go, Hey, I want you to go do something or other. And then, and they're like, you're not listening to me. And then you spit back what they just said, but you really weren't listening. Um, you uh, you heard them, but you weren't really listening. And the difference is, you know, you you listen to understand and to and to engage. Um, hearing is a physical act. We can't we can't not hear someone when they speak to us, but we can we can choose not to listen. And I'm a qualitative researcher, which means that I go out and interview people as my main mechanism for doing my research. And so I have to work very hard to listen and not just hear what people say. And so I've, I, you know, one of the things that, that we know from, I and mean, if you've ever taken a survey and they ask you, you know, for some range of response and, and, you know, you're like, my answer isn't in, you know, any of the five choices you gave me. So which one am I supposed to pick? And you might, you know, and this is, I gave you five choices, you pick one of them, but that doesn't accurately represent your real feelings or thoughts on whatever the question was, which is why I like being a qualitative researcher because I don't, if I'm talking to you, I'm not confining you into a box of three or five answers. Instead, I'm asking you to use your own words to describe something to me. And then I try to understand what it is you're telling me. It's a lot harder to do that and a lot more time consuming than just giving somebody a, a questionnaire. Uh, but very often, questionnaires might presume a range of answers and they may not be asking the right question. So for example, if you limit gender to man or woman and someone who is a trans person says, well, I guess I'm a, you know, I'm a trans man, so I'm going to check off man. But for a healthcare provider, we need to actually know what your sex is because your biology and your social presentation, right? Your gender, we could argue is a, is a social presentation, but your sex drives how drugs 
and other treatments are going to impact your body. And so your provider needs to know, okay, yes, you are, you, you identify as a man, but you are, your sex is female. And those two things are, are, are different. We could argue gender is soci socially constructed, but sex is not. Um, so, so a care provider needs to kind of be aware that you have to ask questions in a way that's going to elicit the responses that you actually need as the provider actually needs to provide appropriate care, particularly to a special population. Patient-centered care is a relatively new idea and, 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 may sound bizarre to you, but my father was a physician and he did his training in the 70s. I went to medical school in the mid-70s and was trained in the 70s. And, and when I've discussed patient-centered care with him, and he practiced through this period where patient-centered care became a, a thing, but it wasn't a thing when he was learning to be a physician. So what he was told, particularly when he was in training, was uh, working when he was working with senior physicians who were teaching him, he was told uh, that as the physician, it was his job to evaluate the patient and then come up with the appropriate interventions and care for the patient. And then it was his job to sell or convince the patient that he his decisions as the physician were the right ones to pursue. So it was a very doctor-centric way of practicing medicine. I'm the doctor. I know best. You, the patient, you don't know anything. I'm going to tell you how it is. Patient-centered care is a, is a real paradigm shift, a real change in the way that care is thought about by providers. It puts the patient at the center, hence the name patient-centered care, and tries to take the patient and the patient's desires into consideration first. So it, it addresses an individual's specific healthcare needs and desired health outcomes. And patients become partners with their healthcare providers rather than just dumb recipients waiting to uh, be told what to do. Uh, Atul Gawande, Dr. Atul Gawande has some really great books, uh, one of which is called Being Mortal. And Gawande is a general surgeon. He, he practices at, I believe, Mass General, and he teaches at Harvard Medical School. And he talks a lot in this book, Being Mortal, he talks a lot about patient-centered care. And he gives some examples. And he says, you know, as a general surgeon, he does a lot of work in the bowel, right? So if you have uh, uh, cancer, you know, um, colon cancer, for example, you'd be treated by uh, a general surgeon. And so he does he does a lot of surgical interventions. And so he talked about talking to a patient who had, I believe it was colon cancer, and she definitely, she, she was terminal, she was going to die. And she was working, he was working with her and her care team. And he was discussing with her, her options. And she could have taken uh, some radical interventions that, you know, um, or she could take that would probably extend her life but she would have more, you know, she would probably be bedridden and, you know, be more limited, or she could take less, uh, less intense interventions 
she would live a shorter life, but she might have a higher quality of life. And as it turns out, she had a son, I believe it was a son who was getting married. And so her priority was not to necessarily live longer, but to live long enough and be healthy enough to attend the wedding. So that was her wishes. A physician who takes a more of a doctor-centered perspective might have just said, well, my goal is to make you live as long as possible. And the intervention might have kept the patient alive, but she wouldn't have been able to go to the wedding. And, and uh, you know, and ultimately our quality of life is determined by many of these social events. And so Gawande indeed provided a lower level of, uh, of intervention and the patient was able to go to the, to the wedding. So when we talk about patient-centered care, this is a nice little graphic from the Massachusetts Medical Society, right? It talks about how, you know, we're trying to align the care with the patient's goals. It's collaborative. It focuses on physical and emotional comfort. Um, it considers the patient's and the family's values, right? It keeps the family involved. Um, and and it is probably, most importantly, transparent, right? Um uh, uh, the patient has knowledge of what's happening and and the kind of care that is being delivered. And so I want to close on this. So we've been talking about populations uh, and special populations, but people aren't populations. You aren't a population. You are you, right? You are an individual. Your mother and father are each individuals. Your children, if you have them, uh, or or when you have them, are going to be individuals. And so they shouldn't be treated as their racial group, their gender, the sex, and so forth. They should be treated as individuals with unique desires, goals, and conditions. Generalizing people into groups can sometimes be useful uh, because there are things we should be looking for when we're dealing with particular populations but there is a real risk that comes with overgeneralizing. All right, that's it for special populations.